Welcome to another Dishcast. This time someone I've known forever again. I really love having people on whom I've known for a long time because certain things can be just taken for granted. I think conversations can be great like that. Um, this time David Frum, who needs no introduction really, whose long path is something I'm going to ask him about today, uh, who has been probably one of the most consistent, relentless, and empirical critics of Trump in ways that I deeply admire and have been really stunned and uh, proud to know him the last four or five years, uh, teaching, telling the truth, essentially, as it lay in front of us. But now we're in a moment of transition. There are all sorts of questions about the future. But I want to start with the past, David, because it's been a long journey from when we came of age, really, in the late 80s, 90s. And we were, both of us, kind of enthusiastic, intellectual, quote-unquote conservatives who were intoxicated in some ways. I, I, I won't put words in your mouth, but I was definitely intoxicated with the thrill of battle with a very stale liberalism and with various platitudes that I found boring. And, uh, and here we are, all these decades later, with this grotesque display on the mall, with this person who represents now conservatism two generations, forever. Is this was this ride worth it? Did we get it wrong from the start? Well, that is a profound, haunting question. I, I remember when I first met you, when you were lighting up the Harvard government department in the middle 1980s. I was a very unhappy law student who was trying to spend as much time as possible away from the law school. And you are a legendary figure. Um, and uh, you, I think we taught at one point sections. And you taught mm -hmm. the, the section immediately before mine. And it was always a little discouraging how your students would come out of the class burbling with enthusiasm and dynamism. <laughs> and mine would come trudging in with, oh, another hour with this guy. <laughs> and they didn't go out burbling with enthusiasm either. Um, you know, my one of my favorite um, passages in all of literature comes from uh, there's a scene in the Proust legendary novel where um, Proust encounters a middle-aged man whom he realizes he's heard whose early life he's heard about and the early life was actually rather foppish and foolish of this person and has matured now into a, a, some figure and the narrator says are are you the same person who did those things and the narrator cuts him off, or the, the older man cuts him off and says, um, there is no person, however wise you may think of, who has not done and said things that he can hardly recall without the pain of regret. He said, but he should not regret them, because anything that the world calls wisdom, we can only achieve after a journey through the wilderness that we must do alone, that no one can do for us. And so... I, I, I'm not a big believer in thinking about regrets because where, if, you, if you are in the place where you are satisfied to be, the only way to have gotten to that place was the way you got there. Um, and I think for both of us, a lot of our reactions in this moment are products of experiences we had, beliefs we've had, some of which we still have, some of which we may have modified, some of which we reject. And um, 
thanks to modern medicine, we get to live much longer than people in past times did. And that means our lives are going to have more change than the lives of people in past times. I feel like I've lived a really long time. I think partly because uh, we were in this opinion game, as it were, to put it crudely, and perhaps a little too uh, dismissively, um, from our 20s. We're now in our 50s. Uh, that's a long time for most people. I just uh, put together a collection of my stuff, and my God, it goes back so long. Um, I don't feel, I feel, I mean, when I came to America, part of the reason I did was to figure out what I thought about the world. I realized, I was sane enough to realize that that this young Tory from uh, Maudlin College, uh, Thatcher fan, blah, 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 uh, Reagan fan, needed to reflect it had all been too easy and too simple and t too much fun in a way to be that gadfly against the consensus around you in universities. Uh, and <clears throat> I think I emerged from that with a, a pretty robust, basic way of looking at things, which was that I still retained a deep conservatism, a sense of the limits of the human mind, uh, the fallacies of abstract ideologies, the difficulty and sometimes terrible consequences of radical change. But I also saw the benefits of liberalism, its ability to negotiate between so many different ideas and factions. Uh, I saw its ability to produce and to argue for actual sane and humane change which has made lives better for so many people, uh, including myself, very much so. Uh, and I still have confidence in that basic system of liberal democracy and our ability to engage it, to persuade, and to move forward. But I would be more on the conservative side of the scale, especially when it came to radical change. I don't think I've changed. I think, in fact, I've come back to that more. Um, the... The gay rights movement obviously had a big effect on me, so did the AIDS crisis, equally the Iraq war, and seeing the consequences of, of, of over-ambitious ideology. Um, and now I'm back where I'm started, although Trump kind of reminded me too that, that in a strange way that there were some parts of me that were deeply conservative that were not like that, that actually that I had this sense of a nation that had an identity that couldn't just be easily dispersed without resistance and without discomfort. Uh, and I, I hadn't really seen that before. I'd, I'd taken America for granted. And then I suddenly began to see it from the point of view of people who looked around them and were, were bewildered by what had happened, as well as screwed economically. Anyway, that's I'm giving a very brief tour d'horizon. But you, you uh, yours is a little different. I mean, you, but you started out pretty much socially conservative. Yeah. Well, I, I have changed my thinking about a lot of things, and I'm, I don't. People are often sort of nervous to admit that. It's often used as kind of a term of reproach. I mean, I'll meet people who I knew twenty and thirty years ago, and they'll say, "You're you're not as conservative as you were." Uh, that, that's that's really true. I, <laughs> partly because you don't get to have your own private definitions of things. Mm. So th there's this. Sometimes what will happen is as people begin to shift. They'll start insisting that they no, they they have the they are the true Scotsman and all the other Scotsmen are the fake Scotsmen, but at, at some level, I mean, conservatism is what conservatives do. Um, I don't think it has an existence 
apart from human action. And if enough conservatives, if enough people all agree to call each other conservatives are doing something, that's conservative conservatism. And if you can't do that, then, you, you know, you and and you also the one the one issue I have with that was the, is that I'm I'm loath to just surrender a term that has a long progeny that has gone back a very long time, or certainly since the modern West really emerged in the 18th century. Um, and I'm not, I think most, the word conservative today does not describe me, yeah. as most people would understand it. But it's also, okay, I, I respect that. But I don't that. want to give it up. That's why I wrote that little book, which, which is really about, okay, I'm not really a conservative in your sense, but this is, this is what I mean by it. And if, even if it's a parish of one, yeah. It's okay by me. Um, but I think even in the parish of one sense, I, you know, uh, I, 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 I'm writing something just now. I was doing it, working on it this morning. I was, people, you know, if, if 10 years ago you asked me, what did I think of the American system of government? The whole thing, um, both the, the part that's formalized in the Constitution and, and just the ways of doing things. I mean, the voter registration system is not written down in the Constitution, but it's part of the American way of doing things. Uh, the ability of you know, local governments to decide where the voting booths go and don't go, that's not in the Constitution, but the whole thing. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sure there are in many ways where it's uh, unfair or un unjust, but at least it produces institutional continuity. It does a good job of protecting liberties. It, it gets the job done. I would say, no, no, I, I, I don't think that. I don't think it's a very successful system of government. And, and, um, and there are a lot of things that are non-constitutional about it that, are, um, that, are just, that, that could be easily fixed. There's some things that are deeper in the architecture that are hard to fix. But I, I do find, um, in, if the question is a conservative, the conservative is somebody who looks at arrangements that are 200 and plus years old and says, well, they've stood the test of time, therefore we shouldn't tinker with them. I'm decreasingly sympathetic. That. I, I, I've, that's not what I, I would take the, the Burke understand that you have to change to keep things the same. Yeah. The change is just the constant in human affairs. Certainly in modernity, change is real. The question is simply your posture towards change and pragmatic change of the, of, of, with prudence because circumstances have changed or systems have revealed flaws they hadn't revealed before is a completely conservative position, I would say. Um, uh, in other words, I, I, I think changing things, reforming things, is perfectly within the conservative remit. But certainly within the career of, say, Burke or someone that mixed all these things. Uh, so, for example, I could make you know marriage equality an argument within the conservative tradition. Um, and similarly, I think one could reform aspects of the constitutional paraphernalia of the United States uh, or electoral system, as we've seen, that would be better. Mm -hmm. And I think we should. But well, that's not that's not changing the entire definition of America or or well, well let me put this a little bit more bluntly and maybe a little way that's a little more direct and even vulgar. Um, the conservative tradition, broadly based, thinks the greatest danger to liberty comes from the demands of those who have less for more. And the thing I've really absorbed in America in the past decade, and this will not be eternally true, but it's true right now, is the greatest threat to liberty comes from the people who have much wanting even more than that. Um, it's a top that the threats to American institutions in our recent time have come from the top down, not from the bottom up. Um, and so... Um, but the kind of conservatism I'm interested in actually understood that in the 19th century, whether you look at someone like Disraeli, whether you look at someone like Bismarck, when you even look at someone like Thatcher, who saw exactly that, that the thing had become unbalanced, that ordinary people... 
needed to be reached out to and helped or, or energized or brought yeah. into the project. That also has a conservative history. Um, and it seems to be a possible future for conservatism. Well, I, 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 look, I hope so. And in the adjective sense of the term, um, you know, I, you know uh, I have more to fear from politics than to gain. Um, I'm a basically contented person. So in that sense, I'm a conservative person. I like my little garden. I want to keep what I have and, um, and preserve the world that I knew. Um, but ideologically, uh, I, I do find myself – remember, I, I went I – once, our mutual friend Christopher Hitchens, um, I remember once asking him about missing socialism. And he said he missed it the way a man would miss an arm. But his experience had been that every time he tried to stop his movement away from socialism, he just found nowhere to put his feet that stayed intact beneath them. Yes, it's what we used to call, um, I used to call the neocon slide, which was you'd have, uh, this is a sort of more 80s, 90s concept, which is that you have an old-fashioned liberal who just suddenly realized, I really can't stand that. I yeah. think they've got that wrong. And then they become this sort of sensible yes. pragmatist. And then you think, well, that's kind of an interesting position. And then you're like, oh, no, he's gone. He's, he's gone yeah. to the – and then before you know it, whoosh, he's right out there. Um, I'm thinking of someone like Max Boot, yeah. for example, right now, who yeah. would be a classic neocon slide person. Yes. Uh, or Jennifer Rubin, who's, on, who's just – well, she's more of a Brock person. She's yeah. just completely uh, reversed herself. Why can't you find – somewhere in between. I mean, it seems to me that that's actually the challenge right now yeah. because the tribal pull, the magnets on either side are so powerful that to flip over to one of them oh, would make yes. life so much easier. And it is hard to be somewhere not there. Very it, hard. Um, well, one, one, I, I agree with that. I mean, you don't want to, um, there's a James Thurber wrote fables for grownups. And one of them was about the bear who could take it or leave it alone. And this bear, he had a drinking problem and he would come home and crash into the furniture and his wife would be uh, very upset and his children would be very frightened. And then one day a temperance preacher comes through town and the bear quits alcohol and not only takes, quits alcohol, but takes up calisthenics and became, becomes kind of a feature on the temperance circuit. And people would come to the town to meet this bear who'd given up alcohol. And he would perform the calisthenics in the living room and crash over the furniture and fall on his face. And the wife would be very upset and the children would be very frightened. And the moral of the fable is it's as bad to fall on your face as it is to fall on your back. But that's it. I think one of, one of the best inoculations, and this is one of my post-Trump resolutions, um, social media creates especially tribal incentives. Um, and Spend less time there. And, and I, again, one of my post-Trump resolutions is to spend less time thinking about the current and more time thinking about things that happened more than 20 years ago and things that will have, have impacts more than 20 years in the future. Yeah. I think that's, a, that's wise. There's a certain um, – you know, the old notion that one should live in the present implies a balance between past and future that is serene. Whereas living in the present today is to live in a torrent of constant distraction, uh, shallowness, and incomprehensible speed of change, including yeah. events where you know the whole world can be in a different place in the afternoon than it was in the morning. When that's your present, it's it's important to get get some distance from it. When Trump comes along, and of mm -hmm. course completely revolutionizes, well, does he revolutionize? How big? Let me ask you this question, which is often, you know, the left often uh, goes on about, that Trump is simply an extension 
of the logic of Reagan and Bush. Yeah. Um, my reaction is I, I think that's a very um, parochial American way to think of it because, yeah, obviously Trump has draws from the American past, but there are Trumps all over the planet. Um, does Viktor Orban come out of the American past? Uh, does the National Front, uh, Front in France come out of the American past? That clearly not. Um, so you have to cite Trump both in the in American history, but but also at the same time across across space as well as across time, and to say this has been happening across the developed world. Things like this, um, and liberal democracy is. And there are countries that are doing better. Um, you know, Canada, Australia, Germany. There are countries that are doing worse. Um, England, America, France. Um, but we've, we're all, in, and of course, the, the new republics of Central Europe, but we're all, we're all facing the same thing. So when people say, yes, obviously, I mean, you can see there are parts of Trumpism that are very American. And, and the project in particular uh, to, for a propertied minority to use the instrumentalities of American government to create the appearance of having a majority of power, that's the oldest of all American traditions, and, and Trump is in that tradition. But there's also something, um, you know, uh, the COVID denialism, um, that's global. That's not American. Um, the, uh, the, the sense of victimhood, the crisis of, of the man's place in the world, the white man, especially the man's place in the world, um, that Trump is speaking there to something that is across the developed world. So you have to see it both ways, both in space and in time. Yes. What... Um, uh... And how does that manifest itself? You see, it seems to manifest itself to me in a quite understandable response to your economic lives turned into meaningless gig jobs or at, at best, you've got five careers, you've got to hustle every day. The dignity of work has sort of disappeared. The, the family has disintegrated in, in large part, at least the, from the family we knew from the 50s and early 60s. Um, and you go to London, and it's 40% of the population in London wasn't born in the UK. Uh, you look at the, the dramatic uh, demographic shifts in this country over the last 30, 40 years, uh, which have led to a, a century-high peak proportion of foreign-born population, and, and by far the biggest wave of immigration in actual just pure numbers that America's ever experienced, in a way that seems to have coincided with things like uh, you know, the, the, the full integration of women into the world at large, um, the emergence, and, and this, is, this has been a, a real change, obviously, of homosexuals that are now integrated into society and, and sort of a, a regular part of it. Um, and I would say, even though you know, it's not a fashionable thing to say right now, that we've also had success in, in overcoming a lot of racism and a lot of racial barriers, and and we have done quite well in many ways, certainly as well as one might have expected, uh, in in keeping a multicultural, multiracial society going. But, but there are these stresses on it require some sort of response, don't they? That 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 didn't, that, that answers those needs. I mean, my worry about Biden right now. To, to move us into the present is that I'm not sure he has fully integrated why Trump happened, why Brexit happened, why the populist forces in France, as you say, are so strong right now. Mm -hmm. um, 
and because of that could make things worse. Um, and, and, and that's my concern. Well, when we're taking stock, I, I had occasion the other day to look at the first articles I wrote for The Atlantic about Donald Trump in, in 2015. And um, they, they all have a similar, they, they say different things, but they all t have the same premise. And the premise is, obviously, it's impossible that he's going to win the Republican nomination. I, I don't even write that because that's just so self-evident. And it's also obviously um, impossible that he could, even more impossible, even ludicrous that he could be president. And he's obviously also a joke and a buffoon and a weirdo and a creep. Um, but nonetheless, he's telling us some interesting things we need to know about America. Uh, we should, you know, uh, that there's some really, you know, good stuff here that could be mined by, you know, a more imaginative politician. And so when, when people coined this phrase, never Trump, I wasn't never. I, at the beginning, I sort of thought he might do some good. He might do some good. Um, and then he's going to say some things and, and uh, blast somebody, Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Scott Walker, somebody uh, out of the 80s into the present. And, and then they'll make mincemeat out of him. And there's this moment at the end, and it took me until, and when you look at the polls, Trump becomes the front runner in the Republican race in the first week of July of 2015. And except for one week in November when he yields to Ben Carson, he stays the front runner. I mean, so like it was a completely unjustifiable point of view, but I had it. And it's only like around Christmas time of 2015 where I was, my God, this is for real. This could actually happen. And uh, it's not just a I hope we've learned a valuable lesson here. <laughs> I mean, it's an actual car crash. And then I became more and more alarmed. Um, does is Biden up to it? Um, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, if prosperity would help, overcoming the virus would help. Um, that think, seems to me two massive structural cyclical advantages he has. Right. He's going to be the man who liberates us from COVID, whether yeah. he has that much to do with it or not. Right. And there's so much pent-up savings that the economy is going to boom. People are going to get new jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So that is, you know, that's a really good uh, starter gun. Um, but go on. <laughs> but, and what also one might hope is um, just the, the weight of America as it is is going to make itself felt. I mean, that, that I mean, that, uh, you know, we've got a situation where the, the country has been governed through most of the 2010s by the most, um, by the parts that struggled most uh, with adjustment to a more global society, all the changes you talked about. Um, you know, that, that it's been 2000, it's been 10 years, and I don't mean this in an in invidious way, but the, the people who have had the most to complain about the modern world have had the most power. And that just, but there just aren't enough of them. I mean, the, you know, this is a statistic done by Brookings that the Biden counties, there are 400 of them or something like that out of 3,000, produce 70% of the country's economy. And at some level, you can't govern the country as if California's not there and if Kentucky, and as if Kentucky and Oklahoma are the two most important places in the country. No disrespect to Kentucky and Oklahoma. They are also important, but California is there. So I'm, I'm hoping that some of those things will be felt. Um, and that Biden could be a moderating impulses on some of the more euphoric impulses in his own coalition. Yes, that is possible. Um, going back, of course, uh, to Trump, for me, the question was always the unique genius of this guy in terms of demagoguery and salesmanship, incredibly good at what he did. And that seemed to me to be apparent from the get-go. Um, the appeal of a 
a leader, a decisive leader on your side in this bewildering time, which in some ways is a kind of surrender of self-government to another person, but it's very tempting when you are lost, when your values are all over the place. Um, and as you know, my, I, I, I was thinking about the ancient understanding of the relationship between uh, a fully realized democracy and the, the temptation in that particular case to reach for a, 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 a powerful leader to dominate it. Um, and so, uh, and I've, I, never, I never believed for an instant that Hillary Clinton could win a general election. I just knew she couldn't. Uh, even though I was mocked. Um, uh, so I felt Trump was going to be president for a long time. And I mean, you remember our, yeah. <laughs> our moment. Um, you tell, you tell the, I, 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 Will you tell? Because I, I mean, it was just before the election, actually. We, we, and we, we had dinner on the Sunday night before the vote. Um, and it was just the three of us. Was, we were doing some work on our house. We were in a very tiny little part of the house. And it was you and me and Danielle, my wife Danielle. And uh, uh, you were in a kind of a down mo mood, but also very prophetic mood. And I was saying, this can't happen. This can't happen. And I then went on to, this, I launched into this prose poem about <laughs> all the people who are going to come out, you know, the women with the cookware with the French words on it, <laughs> you know, all the, in, you know, all the interns at every company. And you were saying, and you just said, no, he's going to win. He's going to win. And I said, you're just, you have to believe, wake up, <laughs> you'll wake up on Wednesday morning and you, you have to believe in America. And well, you've got the last laugh. On that one. Well, um, kind of, because in fact, it was a close election and he didn't win the popular vote. But yeah, he appealed to enough of the middle of the country to win that election. I could see that coming up. Why did I see that come? Because I think I have, I think it's, I don't know, it's maybe a sort of Irish Catholic, white ethnic people. My parents didn't go to college, that kind of background uh, that, 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 that I still try and keep tabs on and in touch with, even though it's another country. Um, that made me frightened. And I genuinely was frightened. I mean, I, I, you know, it's not fashionable to admit this kind of thing. Uh, but he struck me as so unstable that we, could, we were going to be constantly surprised. Yeah. And in the end, of course, his essential attempt to rally a group of people to physically prevent uh, the vice president from counting the electoral votes... Uh, was one of those things. Was I overreacting? That's the question. Uh, did he turn out to be a damp squib in terms of authoritarianism? Uh, and my feeling is yes and no. Yes, the worst didn't happen. I, I, I thought maybe martial law or after some riots or something like that would happen and we would end up in an authoritarian position. Um, but he never really conceded anybody else's give and take with him in any part of the Constitution, in any part of politics. It was all pure me, mm -hmm. uh, even to the point of his own self-destruction, of course, because there were plenty of enablers, many more than I anticipated. Were you shocked, by the way, at how the Republican Party embraced Trump? I was dispirited by it. Um, uh, and a lot of the people are people who you and I both know mm -hmm. well, both in politics and in media. And, and many of them are people we knew a little bit. Um, and people... You know, I, I don't think I've I don't think I've had any dramatic breaches of friendship, but I have had a lot of like quiet downgrading of my view of people. There, not everybody. I mean, there are people um, who I think have had responsibilities. Um, you know, if uh, if if you run an institution that depends on the support of the conservative world, and you just didn't have permission 
to do more. So I, there are people who say, well, you, they did not do anything bad themselves. They had, they were responsible for the fates of others, and they had to navigate their little ship. Now, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people with those kinds of responsibilities. We're writers. We don't have those responsibilities. Right. We can say what we think. Um, but there are other people who, who went, who did much more than was necessary. And I was, of course, shocked beyond imagining by what happened on January the 6th. But when it began to happen, my, my first thought was, um, I had taken part in some of these exercises where we war-gamed different responses. There are a number of nonprofits in Washington that said, well, what if President Trump, what if before the election, what if he doesn't leave office? What happens? So I joined some of these simulations. They're very interesting. I run by university and very interesting, not run by people at a university. And, but one of the takeaways from the exercise was whoever resorts to force first loses. The goal was you needed to goad the other person into resorting to force, and then have the authority of the use the authority of the state to suppress the law breaking. And that that was just something we were all surprised by because people would have all kinds of imaginative ideas about ways that Donald Trump could use the force, and it always backfired. And I remember we didn't have this particular scenario. This was not one of the things we war game. But when it started to happen, that's that's he just lost the game because he he started it. He started it. And he visibly started it. And now the state has to come in and has to suppress him and has to suppress his people. And, and what you saw in the immediate aftermath, I think it was very striking, was how many people in the conservative world began to feel sorry for themselves and say, we're going to be discriminated against and, and targeted. And we say, well, one, that's not the right thing to say. That's, that's sort of <laughs> having, having either enabled- But I'm going to go to jail. Yeah. Well, not, that's not that those people. The people who, having repeated the All lies right. that caused these- people to attack. Um, Self-pity is not called for. But on the other hand, you're not wrong. You are not wrong because you are going to be under suspicion because you did help to incite or enable or justify or legitimize an attack on the structure of the state. And Which means those who, let's be clear about this, um, and when you say suppress, you don't, you don't mean deny them their freedom of speech or their right to organize. Oh, let me be more specific. No, no, no. But what, just, what is going to happen is Put this way. That's a soundbite that I don't want to okay. leave, leave on. Okay, so suppre- what is going to happen is, and we've seen this happening, if you join the National Guard, if you want to join the National Guard, um, your social media history will be looked at. And whereas two months ago, that if you had a lot of Breitbart and Daily Caller, uh, you'd, you'd be in a lot less trouble than if you had a lot of Black Lives Matter material. That's going to change. If, if you are a, someone who takes part in Breitbart and Daily Caller forums, you're going to have some trouble with your application to join the National Guard. Not, not to say they'll say no, but you're going to have some explaining to do. And uh, it's going to be very much like um, what, is, what has happened. I think a parallel here is what's happened in France since the 16th of October with the terrible killing. You know the story about Samuel Petit, the secondary yes. school teacher. Um, the man who was beheaded uh, by... Not one of by one of his students. No, no, by someone else. No, that, it was not one. That right. was the thing that made it so. So obviously, mm-hmm. France has had hideous atrocities before: the Charlie Hebdo massacres, the nightclub killings, the uh, killing of the priest, the killing of the priest. What was different in this case was it, it was not just that it was a stranger killing. The killer was a Chechen refugee um, who had never met the teacher, and indeed, the teacher was quite popular with the class, which was had a lot of Muslim students and. Um, and he gave the permission not to look at the – when he was showing 
the cartoons, he gave people the, the right to leave the room if they would find it offensive. Right. And, and the, the, the campaign against him started because one of the students who had enjoyed the class came home and told her parents about it. And then her father went wild and he began this campaign. But what, what was similar to, to between October 16th in France and January 6th here was it didn't, you could see it coming. It, it was being, it was ballyhooed for days and days and days. And important institutions led by people who would never commit violence themselves were calling for action against this teacher. And the teacher actually had some police protection. Um, and so it, it had a kind of hideous inevitability to it uh, when he, the teacher was attacked in the street and killed by this total stranger who was reacting to fantasies. Definitely, I mean, the things that were said about him the, the, mm -hmm. the, were not actually true. I mean, it wasn't, mm -hmm. people did not say, oh, he showed this cartoon in class in the course of a discussion of free speech, therefore he should die. They had other kinds of wild claims about mm -hmm. him uh, out of the Sidney Powell style universe. Um, and France was having a moment of reckoning. And many of the Muslim institutions are having moments of reckoning. And the particular group that was most active in defaming this teacher has been dissolved, which you can do in France. Um, so I think what's going to happen here is there's going to be, um, they're going to be there's going to be social discussion about this. And there's mm -hmm. going to be popular pressure. Um, stay away from, uh, and it's going to come from inside the Republican world. Senator Sass's article in The Atlantic about QAnon, I thought was a very important first step. And many people said, well, where was he now? He, Sass is no hero. Yeah, that's right. It's when the non-heroes start speaking out. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, brave people will do all kinds of crazy stuff. It's the non-brave people. They are the ones that make a difference. But it, it also seems to me legitimate for a lot of Trump voters to say, look, I'm a, I, hate, I hate those bastards in Washington. I hate the elites. That's why I voted for him. Um, fuck you all. And I, but I am not one of these crazy ass people right. that stormed the Capitol. That, so now's, that, now's that, your that, opportunity. That this, is, this is what Bill Maher was warning the left this Friday saying, don't conflate 75 million people with those people on. So that's, and I. I 74 million. Let's 74 just, million. Let's not give yes. the, the oh, president's last piece of bullshit on yes. the wall. Let's not give it to him. No, it seems to me the unforgivable thing, unlike anything else, and a greater level, an order of magnitude, was the denial of the legitimacy of the results. That is just a fundamental rampart of liberal democracy. It is, if you can't believe in the result, and if not only do you think it's been rigged uh, by elites to yep. make sure you're never heard, uh, and given also the opacity and also the complexity of the American electoral system, which can befuddle anyone, uh, but nonetheless, it was quite clear that Biden won this election quite well in the popular vote and pretty decisively in the electoral vote. And anyone who entertained the delusion that he didn't, from then on, in my view, from that day onwards, is culpable. But this is how ter terrorism always works in this way. Let me use, you, you mentioned the Irish. Let's use this analogy. So there are, what, what is the population of Ireland? Uh, six Four, million people. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know, five and, million the, and then there's this Irish diaspora, especially in the United States and Australia and Canada. So there are probably tens of millions of people around the world who are sympathetic to the cause of a united Ireland yeah. capital in Dublin. And there were some number of them who, had, who resonated to some of the arguments of the IRA. And there was some number who would put a little money in a box and not mm -hmm. think too hard about where it was going. And there was some smaller number who would put the money in the box knowing where it was going. But the actual number, number of violent criminals was measured in the dozens, never more than 100. Um, and the IRA was broken when uh, the people who were, had been sort of sympathetic to the cause said, that's it. 
um, we are separating you from the cause. And, and when the Irish state and the Irish diaspora and the Irish population, they join, they said, you know, we are also your enemy. Um, and that and that's that's true with Muslim terrorism. That's true with all kinds of terrorism. That that they were the victory comes when you cut them off from the people who might be their base of support. And that when we think what can happen now in America is yeah you need um, the you need Ted not never mind Ben Sass you need Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley to say affirmatively you know I I share some things with this movement, but no, I want no part of this. This is unacceptable. These people must be condemned, and I will lead the condemnation. Um, and I, I think we have a chance for that. Now. I just I hope want so. them to say one thing. Joe Biden won this election fair and square. That's all I want them to say. Yes, that's, that's maybe, that maybe that's the test. I mean, that is the key test. Is this system legitimate? Are yeah. we going to allow this person who's just been elected to have his turn in government, like you're going to get your turn in the future as well? Yeah. Are we in agreement about the basic uh, acceptance of the legitimacy? And do you not think that when the right comes back and says to someone like you, for example, well, look what you did and what you said about Russia and Trump. Now, there are plenty of... Uh, I think, unsavory aspects of his campaign's relationship with the Russian government. No question about it. But his claim, uh, Trump's claim, and indeed the core Trumpist claim, is that they were deemed illegitimate from the get-go. This is, you know, what's, what, this is just uh, payback yeah. for your delegitimizing. Um, and I did see an extraordinary statistic this morning that 57% uh, of Americans didn't regard Trump as legitimate after the 2016 election. Um, so how would you address that? Well, um, I, I wrote a lot. Because you got pretty far out on there on this. I, I wrote a lot about Russia. Um, and I think I always wrote very carefully about what I knew and what I didn't know. And I said, I wrote and I said on TV hundreds of times that we know that Russia helped Trump. And we know that Russia wanted to elect Trump. Those are facts. The question, we have a question mark about what, how the signal was returned. And what we see, and I would always stress this, is what we see is disturbing, but we, you know, we are, that's, that's what we are waiting to know. And I never made an affirmative claim that Trump um, cooperated back. It was bad because what was fact was bad enough. And what um, I, I wrote a lot about how um, the special, I wrote this in the, a month before Mueller was impaneled, I wrote that the special counsel was a mistake. Um, I wrote this in The Atlantic, and I said it on TV hundreds of times because I said, what you're going to discover is the things that, were ha that happened that were bad were not illegal. And the thing, it's not illegal for a private American businessman to owe a lot of money to business partners in Russia. Right. Um, and the things that happened- well, that I couldn't understand is why it was so impermissible for the incoming national security advisor to talk to the Russians in advance of, of becoming president, to talk about- uh, what was going to happen next? I, I mean, I don't see why that was so inherently awful. I don't know. Well, uh, the, well because that's in, in the totality of the circle. Uh, so I, I, I wanted to always to take this out of the realm of law. The reason why what Flynn did was so wrong um, or so suspicious um, was... Because he did nothing wrong in talking to the Russians about future policy on well, Trump. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. So what was suspicious about it was, um, look, it's for the incoming national security advisor, it's bad form. But it's not worse than that. I mean, incoming national security, they have this con will happen all the time. People call up and they'll say, you know, I look forward to our meetings. I look forward to it. And, you know, we have one president at a time. But they would they begin the work the day after right. the election, of course, as they should. Um, what happened here was uh, you had a really serious national se security concern, which is that the Russians had intervened in the election. 
Uh, they'd intervened in order to elect Trump. Devin Nunes says they just intervened to cause chaos, but he's not someone I, whose view of this I take very seriously. They intervened to help Trump. Um, and Trump came to power. Um, and uh, and the question is, okay, are we... And he came to power in a way where there was this question mark over his head because of his history of statements and his and the murk over his business dealings, many of which he lied about. Um, and... Uh, I never took the Steele dossier very seriously because just around the corner, I used to have, um, I haven't seen him in a bit, but drinks all the time with David Satter, who um, Financial Times correspondent, great expert on Russia, um, wrote the books about the, the Moscow bombings of 2000, where probably the Russian Secret Services faked bombings in order to bring Putin to power. Um, not Putin himself, but the Secret Services around him. And, and he said the Steele dossier looks like Russian disinformation. Just be careful with it. And I, I think that has proven to be right, that it's full of some stuff that was true but boring, some stuff that was sexy and exciting, and the sexy and exciting, the Russians inserted in order but you to- You can see why. But here's- But that people, I'm just trying to, I'm just, because I'm- But I, Trump I, did take the help of, of a foreign government. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. And, and, Not and, only and, that, and, but and in the campaign, David, he's standing there in front of a microphone on national television asking the Russian government to intervene- Right. To release and, Hillary's emails. Now that's the thing with Trump. When it's so out there, as far as I was concerned, morally speaking, I know that already, and people did know that already. They still, he's and still he never fixed elected. it. He never fixed it. He had the opportunity. This is, and we're going back to Flynn here, that knowing all of that, um, that the idea that you have these. He didn't just talk to the Russian ambassador once. You talk to him multiple times in a day, where you're making calls back to uh, Mar-a-Lago. And uh, that you obviously are frantically working on a particular thing under these suspicious circumstances, and then you lie to the FBI about your conversations. So um, I'm glad Michael Flynn won't go to prison. He served the country with distinction in Iraq. And even though he's gone kind of gonzo uh, since then, I'm glad he's not going to prison. Um, And I think he... uh, you know, but I, I but don't. But you ha- can see how this. There is a distinction, a very clear distinction, it seems to me, between believing the entire vote was rigged um, and deliberately against you, and that you actually won in a landslide, and therefore claiming this is, and people having suspicions about your Russian contacts. So there's a cloud of of doubt over you, uh, which renders you somewhat illegitimate. But I'm just saying, I think it's important for but the, the left tra- and Democrats to concede. That they and no, you I, you were once I, think, I would not concede this because because it, no it, concede it that the, the the Democrats for example went over the top that this story became way too dominant in the media that it was an obsession of the elite press that there were many other things to cover that once Mueller was on the case you could leave him on the case this was a decision by the elites to nail this guy uh, around something that of course they didn't quite have the goods for I, I'm going to I'm going to just dissent from you on this because uh, because Mueller did not do a good job because Mueller Mueller, this is a very legalistic society and Mueller decided that his job was to execute law and that meant that his job was to hunt for prosecutable crimes and then if he could prove a prosecutable crime beyond Mm -hmm. the the benefit of beyond the uh, benefit of the the balance of the doubt uh, then to indict and proceed Um, the idea that you we say what what if we just think this president is in a situation where, honest to goodness, you could not get a, a third-tier security clearance at DOD. Um, and this president, uh, he has business contacts in Russia that he has never disclosed. 
and that he's broken with precedent not to disclose and that he's lied about on the public record. Um, how do we find out about that? The special counsel is the worst possible way to do it because none of these things are probably – and I, again, I stress this again in, in – it's not going to be illegal. You're not going to – the things you need to know, the things that are important are not illegal and the things that are illegal, by the way, right. are turned out not to be important. Can I get you to concede that you can see why his supporters might feel this way? I can see why they might feel this way, but I'm going, not going to concede. I am out of the woods of saying to a Trump supporter, I, can, I understand why you feel that way. and you have a rational basis for feeling that way. I, I, can, I get it. I know why you feel that way, but you're still wrong. Yeah. Uh, because the president... The, the, well, I agree. I basically agree with you. I, I, I just felt that people went to town on this story in a way that, that was... That, 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 we that should, really, never, we that, should never have had a, a special counsel. We should have had um, a nonpartisan uh, outside commission of investigation. And the president, of course, could have at any time put this to bed by doing proper financial disclosure, which he never did. What do you, what do you think you were most right about with Trump? What was the thing that you kind of grasped that you're that in retrospect you think well that was that was the right thing to do that was the oh, right thing. The thing I was I think I was most right about. Uh, let me tell you the thing I was. I'm going to ask you. Don't the, don't worry. Okay, it's I, coming. I, I was going to start with the <laughs> modest one and then no, go into the self. No, 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 I was going to no. end on a high note. <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not here, here you don't. don't. <laughs> Not here you don't. <laughs> okay. Brag first. Okay. So uh, was. Uh, the weakness of the institutions around him. Yeah. Um, that uh, I, I kept saying there, there are no institutions. There are only people. Uh, they're not self-executing. None of these things work of themselves. And um, that and that the system has never and has never met this kind of a test. And we have no idea how it's going to respond. So I, I was. Um, and. And I remember sitting down, I did one of the very first big article I did after he was elected, I sat down with a bunch of people who served in the White House counsel's offices, Democrat and Republican. I came up with a bunch of criminal schemes and, uh, that you could do as president. And I would, well, how, how would you stop this? And I remember one of them uh, saying, you have a really criminal mind. <laughs> These are very good schemes. <laughs> But the short answer was most of them, there was no way to catch I mean, if, if somebody cut Donald Trump into a 17% share of a shopping mall in Kuala Lumpur through a shell company, um, we were never going to find out about that. There was no way to do that. And, and indeed, it probably, unless there's an explicit quid pro quo, it probably wasn't illegal if it came as a kind of gratuity. Um, we'd always relied on disclosure as the prophylactic, but much of the disclosure was optional and the president didn't do it. Um, so... So though we had just relied on people not wanting to test the system, and I was worried the system wouldn't meet the test, and in important ways the system didn't. It didn't, no. Um, I'm thinking of just one, one obvious case, the pardon power, yeah. which it hadn't occurred to people could be used to essentially circumvent the entire criminal justice system. Right. If you have, for me, the thing that I think I most uh, got right uh, is that he was a genius at creating what was essentially, and I still believe it is, and I don't mean this in a terribly negative way, cultish, that he was a, there was something in those crowds and rallies and something in the way that he responded to people that is genuinely demagogic genius. Mm -hmm. And those speeches floored me. Uh, that they were put on TV, cable TV endlessly at the beginning of the primaries terrified me. Um, because I think in a weird way that one of the things one learns 
from studying history is that that skill is real. It, it upends societies. It can just be one strange individual that is, taps into that. But I was sure he had. Now, once that had happened, and an entire political party then became allied to it, we didn't have a two-party system. We had a mass movement in control of an entire party uh, whose loyalty was primarily to the, the leader, uh, uh, Trump himself. And he believed that gave him permission to, and he had no understanding of the Constitution, no interest really in what his constitutional limits were. Um, and given that, given that you've got one major political party that is a mass movement, and this guy, it's a, there's almost nothing they can't get away with in, 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 terms of, in terms of if they were organized, if they were compelling. He, of course, did not have that ability. He just had the ability to destroy things which he duly did, uh, the wreckage of which is all around us in terms of precedence, in terms of constitutional order and procedures. Uh, but that was basically unstoppable, and it pretty was close to it. I mean, it, this election, they did rather well, um, mm -hmm. and much better than most people expected. It's still there. So my thought was, yes, this system is extremely vulnerable to demagogue that takes over a major party, period. And that we survived that just. But it was amazing how close it came, it seemed to me. And it's amazing, and the, the, the final test was, in the period before it turned to violence, how many important Republicans were prepared to go a long way toward Ooh. helping them to flip the election if they could do it with the color of legality? Yeah, I was, you know, I prided myself on being world-weary uh, about politics, <laughs> and yet, the last four years, watching these Republicans do what they've done, yeah. I mean, I truly was aghast at the complete, compl the complete complicity and 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 sub subordination. It, but but that just reminded me that that the fervor behind them that they have to deal with these senators and congressmen is real and powerful. It's not. I'm thinking of things like. Governor Abbott of Texas decreeing or attempting to decree that there would be one place in all of Harris County to drop off advance ballots, Harris County being larger than Rhode Island. Um, and that because the, the, the cent, one of the great problems the Republican Party faces for its future is that um, Texas, its bastion, its fundraising capital, the cities are undergoing the same transformation as is happening everywhere. And Houston and, and even Dallas um, are, are following Austin. Um, and we're at a point now where um, I mean, the Republic, uh, San Antonio and, and El Paso are democratic for different reasons. They have a big um, Latino population uh, where the, the cities that are Republican are Amarillo and Lubbock and maybe Fort Worth, maybe Fort Worth. Uh, so uh, it, Texas has this internal struggle between urban and, and rural. And the governor said, OK, that's it. We're going to stop Houston from voting. And that was a really serious project. Now, that's legal, unfortunately, in the United States. I mean, he, I think he eventually had to back off the project because he didn't have quite the authority to do it. There were some local people who had some power over it as well. Um, but there are a lot of people in the Republican world who are going to walk down that road. And Trump's mistake um, was the violence. And this goes to the thing I got most wrong, was I, I knew he was a psychic mess. But I didn't realize enough how much of a self psychic mess he was and how self-defeating as a result he would be and how there are many more opportunities when he had uh, when, when he, he had power that he threw it away by his own uh, utterly unnecessary and pointless stupidities and mistakes. Yeah, the, the, the key aspect of 
the tyrannical psyche, according to Plato and Aristotle, is lack of self-control, that, that they can't help it, that, that, that they saw the tyrant as, a, as, as kind of reflecting the, the hedonism of late democracy. Um, the picture we've been painting of uh, a very insecure middle of the country, and well, not just the middle, but everywhere, uh, predominantly white, but also not entirely white at all. Um, in the wake of a massive uh, uh, historic shift in demographics in the country, and they're worried about the identity of the country and their sense of their belonging in it. Let's put this in the best terms possible. To my mind, that's an understandable response that we need to reassure people that America is not going to become something else, that this wave of immigration is going to strengthen the society in the long run. They will all become Americans like you at some point. These separate cultures will all mesh together, and we can get through this. The left's position is to say that all these people, basically, I mean, let me, I don't want to caricature it, but let's say it's that most of these people are, are white racist bigots, that the entire country is essentially a system built on white supremacy that is still in full operation. Therefore, ban them. Suppress them, show them what's right and what's wrong, uh, uh, legalize 11 million unauthorized illegal immigrants in this country right away, and then adopt a philosophy of racial difference that is essentially zero sum, in which uh, diversity includes everybody but white people, and in which uh, the ideology has come to seem directly threatening white people as such. I mean, whiteness is a demonized term. Now, a lot of white people in America, whatever you want, however you want to describe that. So that is why I am not that optimistic about managing to manage this divide. We can't get rid of it, but we can manage it. Uh, the, the first thing that Biden has told us, the first piece of legislation, which is a defining moment on Wednesday, will be a mass amnesty uh, and combined with a, a, a rather trivial level of increased border security. Um, now, that does not strike me as substantively a good symbol for the beginning of an administration. I, yeah. how, what do you think? I, know, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, I, I've thought that if you have people who are alienated, um, and there are a lot of them, you know, as you say, this idea that you're going to, that you're going to some, find some way to um, banish the political power of the 40 percent or so of the country, and the forty percent that is located in the areas where the constitutional and governing system gives them hugely disproportionate power beyond their forty percent numbers, um, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Um, I mean, uh, if the forty, you can if the forty percent of the cities, you can do that to them. You can't do that to the forty percent that have the advantage of the electoral college and the senate uh, and the filibuster and um, rural and the uh, inevitable rural and ger gerrymandering both the part that we can't could do something about and the part that really is helpless because there are just that many people in the cities and that few everywhere else. Um, so you have to proceed gently and wisely, and you have to call people back. And it's this it's this work of the work of national unification is going to be challenging, and so. I mean, I've had a series of suggestions. I think you have to join things. You have to uh, to create a stronger sense of belonging. I'm a big believer. Um, I've become increasingly 
uh, outspoken advocate of some self-consciously national form of health insurance. I mean, something where people can, you know, that, that John F. Kennedy line about ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you, that's not the American way. Americans, <laughs> Americans ask what's in it for me. That's the question. So, that's why they came here. <laughs> so, so if you say, what do you, what do, what do you get for being an American? Well, the flag, that's nice, but you get this card. And non-Americans don't have it, not because they're bad. They just don't. Uh, and Americans do. And all your fellow Americans have it. Um, and you're all in this together. Um, at the same time, I agree with you that we need um, uh, lower levels of immigration um, because this, this special tra the trap we're in with immigration is if you compare, if you do a ratio, the pe people who are big proponents of immigration will say, look, if you do a ratio of how many immigrants per year come, legal, illegal, asylum, the whole number, relative to the existing population, that's much smaller than it was in the 1880s, 1890s. So what's the big deal? We did it once before. We can do it again. It's actually relative to the population. It's only half what it was more than a century ago, and we managed that. Okay, that's one way to measure. Here's another way. Back then, Americans were having lots and lots of children of their own. So even when you had big immigration, it didn't change the country so fast. In fact, between 1880 and 1910, the peak years of immigration, the share of foreign born in the country went down because the natives, including the pe people who were, you know, who, who were one generation away, they were having so many children that the foreign born became a, a declining share of the population. There are less, fewer foreign born in the population in 1910 than in 1880. Whereas now, because the natives are having so few children, moderate levels of immigration have a big social shock. And when I was doing more reporting on this, I remember going to a school in um, a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, and talking to a family where they had three kids. And the first kid had gone to, the, all three kids had gone to the same elementary school. The first kid, when he had started, there had been no non-English speakers in the school. And by the time their third was in fourth or fifth grade, wherever the third was, um, the school was like one third non-English speaking in, the, in this lifetime of one family. Now that's a shocking change. And uh, it's, it's more change than people can bear. But we have to also, it's not just a matter of what you stop, it's also a matter of what you give if you're going to make people feel that they're in this country together. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I wish national health insurance would do that. I mean, national health insurance exists as a national religion in the United Kingdom, for example. Uh, well, you're not going to copy. Didn't prevent Brexit. <laughs> no. Um, but, but there's got to be something that, that, that there's got to be a narrative about America. Now, I, I, Obama... I think did have that narrative that we we include more and more we build, but we we certainly don't disparage our founding. We don't we see it as an imperfect project that yeah. we keep working on. That that model of seeing America as uh, perfectible or at least improvable constantly and a story of that improvement always struck me as as a brilliant way of understanding America and in a way of explaining multiracial, multicultural America. That is no longer the that 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 position is now regarded by almost all academia, most of the people running the media, including the New York Times, as as a lie. That in fact this country was built purely for white supremacy over black and brown people, and that's all it's been designed to do. And that and everything else is bullshit thrown in your face to disguise uh, the inherent nature of it. Now that is the that's one. Then you have this. Uh, it's uh, the 1776 thing, which I began to read until I was just like, Jesus, uh, the quality of it is just awful. Uh, and the motives behind it seem 
just so reactive and defensive. Uh, we do need a national story that does not deeply divide us, it seems to me. And that's what I'm worried we're losing. Well, I, I'm less worried than you about if we can use 1619 Project as a shorthand for it. I'm less worried about things like that. Uh, you said early on um, that you believe there's been tremendous progress in America um, over uh, on racial matters, and I agree with you. And, and But it's not a paradox that that uh, improvement mm-hmm. leads to more focus on the things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we now have is um, a generation of black Americans who have grown up in something close to freedom and something close to equality and something close to power it, uh, with some of the scope, intellectual and um, psychic, to, uh, to study the country's history. And as people with a sense of their entitlement to be full participants in the American story, they are confronting the past. Um, you know, not to compare slavery to the Holocaust, but the Holocaust was a much more central event in Germany in 1990 than it was in 1950. Because in, in 1950, the Germans couldn't process it. In, 19, in 1990, the Jews were not welcome to talk about it. Um, as, the, as, you, as you achieve um, a more open society, then you can talk about things that are important to some that they did not discuss because they were afraid of upsetting others. Um, and I, I, to the, the core idea of the 1619 Project, as I understand it, is that you can't tell the story of America without slavery. It's not a bump. It's integral. And that seems to me to be absolutely right. Absolutely I agree. Right. It is integral. And, but is uh, it the defining nature of the well, American experiment? Um, the America you know, for good or ill, would not, could not exist without it. And so many things and many more things in, um, in American life that you think that are, are susceptible to non-slave explanations are still influenced by it. I mean, I don't think there's a way of telling the Second Amendment story, uh, for example, without reference to um, the fear of slave revolt. Um, and or I, I of think, course the Civil War. I mean, not, yeah. no one. I don't think, but I and, don't think that's think, what that's that's not and we the issue here. And we have all kinds of stories that you know things that come closer. I mean, the um, the Oklahoma pogrom, and um, you know, and those uh, the the the, the, the post Civil War destruction of Black voting rights. That's it is not surprising to me that as Black Americans become more equal, they will say we need to talk about these things more, not less, um, and we will talk about them until we've absorbed them and made them part of the American story. And then there will be new generations who come along and say, okay, that's really important and we've absorbed it and it's not everything. And then it, I, I, if the I, lesson of it is that all the institutions and the constitution itself, for example, are manifestations of this uh, evil today, that SAT is a manifestation of this evil uh, that any proportion of life in which there is some discrepancy between racial representation and the actual demographics of the area is itself ipso facto proof of the continuation of white supremacy. The description of the United States in 2021 as a white supremacy, which makes it impossible to distinguish, it's just as the term, from 1830. Uh, That and not just African-Americans, but mainly white people making this argument often to other white people uh, for status reasons or for mutual moral condemnation. Um, that's, that's the problem here, isn't it? I mean, slavery has been shamefully occluded in the history of the United States. Certainly, the, I think the reality of it, the sheer barbarism of it in popular culture, I mean, we, we have only begun 
to examine that, and we should examine that. But to say that that's the meaning of this country, and it always will be, and no one non-white will fully be able to be part of this until we dismantle the entire constitutional system into something very different. That is a whole different level of argument. No, I'll agree with you on that. But I think if, if, I, understand, <laughs> if I understand people say, here's why the part of it that strikes me is really true, is that past events cast a shadow that has, that, um, has an impact for a long time. And, um, you know, I mean, you mentioned the SAT. If there, we can't do a controlled experiment. We say, well, what would happen if both the person taking the SAT and his parents and his grandparents had grown up with under conditions of equality and cultural self-confidence um, and self-belief, how would he do on the SAT then? We, we can't know. We can, and, but we, when we know that how new um, the national commitment to equality is, and then we see these disparities, I, that we always have to be a little suspicious they came from. Let me give you an example that this has been much on my mind. I've been on a reading jag for the past, uh, this year on the history of Haiti. And, um, and it is just startling how things that are 100 years, how a country is shaped by things, by traumas from 100 and 200 years before. Um, and how long after people who are less conversant with the country, and even the people in the country themselves say, you know, it's, that's all the past. It continues. I mean, the way land is held, the way land is farmed, status systems, religious beliefs, they, these cast a long legacy. Um, you know, there's, there, to use the English example, there, there's a, uh, one of the great historians of France who taught a course on, on England used to begin his class with, the, with one, one sentence that said, you must understand England is an island. Which England actually isn't. isn't he, he meant Britain, but <laughs> um, but but that's that's really important, it and, is. and and it's easy to forget. I mean, there, so there you are with the you know the Tudors and the Stuarts, and you forget that it's an island. Except they never had to worry that someone was going to walk. They could have you could have all the civil wars you wanted, and not have to worry that someone was going to invade because they couldn't because you were an island. And it's just there all the time. In the same way, yeah. America was built on slavery. It's there all the time. I agree with you. Uh, I just object to the attempt to use that fact to delegitimize the entire experiment and to negate the extraordinary progress that we have made. Um, I, I, and also that at some point we also have to make a choice not to be completely trapped in our past, not to make that define us forever, even though it's there. Um, I mean, you, well, you well, let and me I could probably tell our own genealogies uh, yeah. that go back to uh, persecution in, in, in Europe or starvation in Ireland, in my case. Uh, so it's, and yet I'm not, you know, and yet we're both capable of engaging and, and right, overcoming let me, that. Let me and offer I'm a, saying a, a, that others can't do that. It seems to me. Uh, let me offer a prediction here that this can test a falsifiable statement. You can test whether I'm right or wrong. So here's what I think is going to happen with this complex of, of feelings and thoughts. Um, uh, this is now the dominant way of thinking among people in their 20s and 30s. And that means that 20 years from now, it will be absolutely the dominant way of teaching American history in schools, in the academy, and it will be dominant in public television. And that will be the consensus view in the 2030s and 2040s of the American story. And all the people like us who have... who say there must be one, we'll all be off the scene one way or the other. And as it becomes ever more the consensus of the 2040s, 2050s, and into the 2060s, there will be bright young people 
in their 20s who will, as they always do say, what we're hearing is not the whole of the story. And there's another way to look at this. And we have to absorb this teaching, but we also have to overthrow it to be ourselves. And I, I think this is a very time that the, 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 the thing that the, the, the critical race theory that gets people so worked up, I think it's a, it's a time-bound phenomenon. Um, it's going to, it's, it, it, it was new, it will become orthodox, and then it will become old-fashioned, and but then it will go out of date. the distinction is that that treated as a school of thought within a liberal democracy, which because it remains a liberal democracy is able to be challenged. This particular school of thought does not believe in liberal democracy at all believes in erasing it. It doesn't believe in freedom and diversity of thought at all. This totalitarian ideology, essentially, would prevent exactly any future generation revolting against it. It, would, it purges people, its dissenters, from its institutions. Uh, it is fanatical in that degree, and its goal is to make that any f future revisionism that brings back the ideas so stigmatized as inherently fascist and racist uh, that it will never come back. That's the goal. That's their goal. Well, I don't think it's going to work. I think because it's, it's hard to make this country totalitarian in that way. I mean, it's just too big. And well, too they, intend to, they intend to undo the Constitution to, to, to do that. They intend to amend the First Amendment so it allows you to suppress certain forms of speech and not others. I, I, I mean, they're not shy about this. I just think that they, it's, just, it's just a law of human nature. That the the fire breathing young radical of thirty becomes the complacent professor of forty five becomes the kind of embarrassing outdated um, professor emeritus of, of seventy and this is the cycle of life and and I and meanwhile I think I think there's a lot of good here there's a lot of things that we need to hear and we need to know more about and and there's a lot of you know um, you know we isn't need to know of, isn't this a lot of avoidance and denial as well. We, we need to know important that issues we need to grapple with. In in 1919-1920, when um, returning German service men were creating these fascist militias and fighting battles with Poles and Lithuanians and um, assassinating Marxists in the in the streets of German towns, the same thing happened here. Um, and that what happened in 19 we ha we too had a wave of right wing nationalist violence. Uh, a lot of it directed by returning service people against black Americans who had moved from the South to the North during the war. And we need to, that's central to the story. The lynching story, um, the, the, the racial terrorism that was used to prevent black, I mean, it really is when Ted Cruz or, Dust, or uh, Tucker Carlson cite reconstruction as an injury that was suffered by the white people of the South. That, uh, and they really said yeah, that? Yeah, that, that, and this is something that, that white people in America today are threatened with. I mean, we need to, it needs, I mean, you, you can't. Both of them are quite are clever enough to know better. They have other agendas, but we need to make it so their listeners wince, and and their own children wince and say that's not how it happened. And uh, I mean, this. Um, I think that the the the, the adaptation, the absorption of the country's ability to look at its history, um, and find a way to uh, live with the dark passages, other than by just saying they're not important or they didn't happen. I think that's a, a, a progressive and good thing. And I think we will come out the other side of this and be better for no it. No one doubts. I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I'm just concerned that the ability for this to be a free and open discussion in which back and forth will happen is and in which new fallacies, and let's face it, a lot of these are unfalsifiable arguments about what American history is, will are accompanied by an ideology uh, that will that is deeply opposed to the notion that you could challenge it intellectually and be treated 
respectfully or equally in any institution in society. And they have, unlike previous movements, control of all the institutions at this point that matter, except for the courts, um, which may play an important role in resisting some of this stuff. Um, but so it's that deep, illiberal, if, if it was about historical going back and digging stuff up and coming to terms with stuff, I don't think many, well, I certainly wouldn't object to that. I think it's incredibly important. Um, and that's why I think it's a bit of a tragedy that, that coming to terms with our past doesn't mean redescribing our entire system as illegitimate. And that's what this does. That's what makes it different, that it's important to dismantle elements of white supremacy, which means dismantle the idea that working hard is a good thing, dismantle the idea that personal responsibility exists, dismantle the idea of the nuclear family, dismantle the idea of free speech yeah. as we have historically understood it, dismantle the Constitution of the United States, well, or reinterpret it in such a way that it's an essentially dead letter. Um, that's the argument, anyway. I'm not. I, 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 I look. I, I believe in hard work. Obviously, it's, it's, it, um, as I. That's whiteness. Uh, as I often, uh, as my, 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 I have this conversation with my children. I'll say, Daddy, you don't believe in fun. I say, of course, I love fun. And you know what are the two best forms of fun? Exercise and homework. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I believe in hard work, but I also think it is. I just think, and this is something that's happened to me as I've gotten older. Is how. What does it mean to deserve what you have? You know, um, you, I'm, I've just turned 60. I've never spent a night of my life in a hospital. Um, and some of that is not smoking, but a lot of that is just good luck. Did I, do I deserve my health? Um, you know, I find it easy to work. I don't get distracted easily. Do I deserve not to be distracted? Um, you know, I, I just I generally have an equable temperament. Uh, do I deserve that? And, um, you know, and I, I ha come from a very supportive and successful family. Do I deserve that? And, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to be guilty about it. I mean I, 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 I mean, I can't be guilty about never having spent a night in the hospital, but I can also understand there are a lot of people who, you know, would have preferred, if they could have chosen that hand from the deck at birth, they would have chosen that one. Um, and so I just think, you know, there are these quizzes that sort of you take online, say, you know, what is your political, and one of the things I always flunk is the question, do you think people's success is mostly the product of their own efforts or mostly the result of luck? And I always, Your own efforts are the result of luck. Your ability to do the efforts, not being a, a de, I'm not depressive, and I know people are crippled by it. Um, so I, I think when we think about how does the country emerge from its history into a new era that is new, it, it seemed like when, when I was first discovering it in the 1970s, it seemed like it had been around forever and it had only been around for a dozen years. And now- What, what are you talking about? The, the, the era where America accepts racial equality. That starts in the middle 60s. I mean, even, you know, there's some, pay, there's some antecedents, but really the society commits itself to that really in the middle 60s. Um, and, you know, and then I come along in 1978, 80 and say, well, this has been going on for 15 years. Time, you know- Time to accept this. <laughs> right. And, and I think the strongest critique of my position is that, like you, uh, I come here a little later, um, but brand new, and simply amazed at how a multiracial society like this operates and works and how amazing it's one of the reasons I wanted to immediately become an American and did not have 20 years of being brought up in a society where a lot of this other stuff is absorbed by osmosis in yeah. a way, in which being an American as a native is a different experience than being an American as a 
uh, as an immigrant. And so therefore, there's a certain amount of naivete maybe in both of our, our views that we entered a family whose history we weren't f as aware of as they were and yeah. certainly didn't have the emotions attached to these various aspects of history that they would have simply by that experience. On the other hand, so I, I, on the other hand, America is about people <laughs> coming here and remaking things and, and re-energizing things and seeing things perhaps, yeah. that people who've been here forever don't see. The fact that it is actually amazingly successful in terms of the first ever truly yeah. multiracial, multicultural country in history. And you, you, with a certain amount of perspective, you can see all the things that an immigrant might love about America as something that many Americans might actually not think of enough because they take it for granted. I have no. A lot of my perspective is shaped on growing up in Canada, and I. I mean, yeah. and I had a story. I was telling the story this summer to sort of describe um, the Canadian. I, I, I. We spend a lot of time in this one small town, two, about two hundred kilometers east of Toronto. My wife's family bought the land, and my my wife and I spend a lot of time there now, and our kids have spent every summer there. Um, and. Uh, when we arrived, we, we went through the quarantine process. On the first day out of quarantine, I'm at the local grocery store. And I'd been reading a lot of stuff about how there are incidents in equivalently rural places in the United States where people wouldn't wear masks. And so I go in with my mask, and all the, everyone's wearing a mask. And I said to one of the um, ladies at the cash register, whom I knew a little bit, um, has there been any trouble with the mask? She said, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. There's a sign on the door. <laughs> oh, okay. Is it from the government? Oh, yeah, it's from the government. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, well Canada is fucking ridiculous. You know, uh, uh, Britain's not quite like that. It's pretty orderly. Yeah. Um, people do take the government seriously. Um, I rather like the more madcap uh, libertarian aspect of America. And, and, and I like it too, but I can't help. I, I just know if there's a sign on the door, I'm going to do what the sign says. <laughs> Well, on that note, <laughs> it has been really lovely to hash some of this stuff out with you um, and get your perspective. Um, uh, I one parting question, really, which is, uh, if you were to, you know, we, we were, we're not in the prediction business, but you and I have sat together periods in history and decided what's going to happen next. Uh, are we going to, are we, is th are things, are we, in four years' time, are we going to feel better? You know, that's not just something to describe. That's something to commit to and to say, you know what? Um, let's see when I say we are going to do our damnedest in all the lines of work we do to make sure that four years from now we do. Um, and uh, where whatever others do, we know we have a certain sphere in which we operate. We have certain energy, certain abilities, and we're going to use them to say, you know what? We are going to over look back on this four years and we are going to make sure that the best description of it was that given by George W. Bush four years ago? Um, four years ago from inauguration day tomorrow, that was some weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> and let that be the epitaph on this era. <laughs> uh, well, here's hoping at least that that's where we'll be. Um, uh, thank you, David. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you for the invitation. Thanks for fighting. Whatever the good fight is, even though we may disagree about exactly what that is. Thanks, and see you next week. Bye.